we are going to um, do a little bit of review, and then we've got a special speaker. You know what? I forgot to grab the clicker. I, I'm not sure what I did with that thingamabobber. Thank you so much. Um, but we're going to do a little bit of review, and then um, we've got a student speaker that's going to come up for about 10 minutes and answer the question, how do we know that the Bible is written by God and man, or something along those lines? Is, is the Bible written by just man, or is it also written by God? Thank you, Matthew. Uh, but let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, beautiful morning for us to gather together, study your word. We thank you for the fact that we can trust in your word, that it guides us. And as we look this morning, we thank you that you have providentially preserved your word. We ask that you'd help us to understand these truths, apply them to our lives and hold them in humility as we engage both Christians and unbelievers um, and, uh, as we uh, just engage them with the truths of your word. We ask that you would um, just be with us, fill us with your spirit, and uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me just do, um, just remind all of you kind of what we're doing here. I've got a couple quick announcements. Uh, the question that we'll be hitting a little bit later in the review time is, is it reasonable for God to swear by himself? The short answer is yes. If you were here last week, yes, it is reasonable. Uh, a conference I do want to mention to you, one of our sister churches out in the Ukaipa area, um, Pastor Todd, um, they're doing a conference, um, Second Annual Creation Symposium, and they have some excellent uh, professors there that attend their church. And uh, so that's at Anchor Bible in Redlands. There's a little schedule here. You can go online and check out their stuff. So it's uh, Anchor Bible Church of Redlands. Um, Matthew Engel and Todd Wood are our speakers, biologists, uh, both of them. Um, and then some additional speakers. It's uh, $10 a person or 25 a family. And so that's uh, October, I think, 9th to 11th. Really, really, should be a really great time. So if you want to sign up for that, we'd encourage, encourage that. Uh, this is our adult equipping school, which the purpose is uh, the is to train our families how to know, live, and speak God's word for his glory. We want it not just to be head knowledge, but you've got to have head knowledge to, to really work out in your life. And we really are encouraging you to speak the word of God, not just to feel good that you know more and that your life is better, uh, but that we have a concern for our friends and neighbors who just flat out don't know the truth a lot of times, right? I was at a conference recently in Indonesia. I'll talk more about that later. The speaker, Mike Shipman, one of the things he just really encouraged uh, everybody there with is when you get the opportunity to share the gospel or talk to someone about the gospel, share it with them like it's their lucky day, right? Uh, there are people that go, in the United States, there are people that go throughout their lives and nobody shares the gospel with them. Uh, talked to Aurelio Barreto, one of our members. He was in his 30s. He knew many Christians. And he was in his mid-30s before somebody shared the gospel with him. And at first he was just absolutely overjoyed. But then after he started to think about it, he started getting angry. And he went to some of his Christian friends and he said, Why did you not share the gospel with me? 
and they were just like, well, we didn't think you'd be open or we were going to, but we just never got around to it. We want to speak with the idea that it's their lucky day, right? If somebody gets to come into contact with you who actually knows the gospel and knows the truth. Um, So that's part of our purpose here. We're going through a particular course. We can trust the Bible. Today's lesson, God preserves his word. And um, let's just do a little bit of review. We asked, is it reasonable to swear by God to swear by himself? We said, yes. The reason is, what's the reason why it's reasonable for God to swear by himself? There is nobody higher than God, right? It's not reasonable for us to swear by ourselves because we are just creatures, but God is the creator. And so if he were to swear by somebody other than himself, then he would be, there'd be somebody greater than God, right? So God does not need to appeal to anyone higher than himself. Um, what do we mean then by the authority of the Bible or, or that the Bible is authoritative? This is what we mean, definition from Grudem. The authority of Scripture means that all of the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So if, if God is the highest authority, he can't swear by anything higher than himself, and he has truly revealed himself to us in the Bible, there is no higher authority than the Bible on the earth for us. And so we can go to the Bible confidently, believe it, and obey it. If we don't obey the Bible, either on purpose or just uh, with lack of knowledge, we are disregarding God himself, his word. His word has authority because it comes from him. Uh, let me just review a couple things from last week. So we, 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 the big part of our message was the fact that we can support the Bible with the Bible because it is the highest form of authority. And that all arguments for starting points or final authority are of necessity circular, right? Anybody who's dealing with the first starting point has to make a circular argument. If they want rationalism to be the starting point, the only way they can prove that is to appeal to rationalism, right? Um, So there's presuppositions that people make all the time, even if they don't realize it. If somebody wants to start with logic, the only way to approve that logic is the best starting point is to say it's logical. The only way to prove that empiricism is the best starting point is to say, I've never seen any better starting point. So you have to ultimately appeal to that starting point. To, um, otherwise, you've, it's self-defeating, right? If you appeal to something higher to prove your highest authority, it's a self-defeating argument. And so... It's reasonable and rational to appeal to the Bible to demonstrate the Bible's authority. And so if somebody tries to tell you that's a circular argument, just ask them, well, what is your starting point? What is your final source of authority or your first source of authority? And you can show them that all starting points are of necessity circular. That being said, then how does one choose among the various starting points or uh, places of absolute authority? Because there's lots of people that have different starting points, right? We all presume a starting point. So how do we choose? Somebody says there is no final authority. Somebody else says it's rationalism. Somebody else says it's logic. So how do we know which competing? And we go to the Bible to answer that question. And so we would argue this, 
the truthfulness of the Bible should commend itself as being more persuasive than any other religious books or than any other intellectual constructions of the mind. It comports best with the actual experience of life. So if everybody was thinking properly, let's assume no fall. Let's assume that the human mind has not been fallen. It has not been affected by what we call the noetic effects of sin. That is the post-fall effects of sin on thinking. Then the truthfulness of the Bible would, it would prove itself to people. Um, however, because of sin, man's perception and analysis of God and his creation is warped. Everybody has the wrong glasses on since the fall. It's like John Calvin says, we have glasses or our eyesight is blurry. We look out at the world and it's blurry and we give wrong interpretations. We can make various guesses because we're still made in the image of God. We look out at the world. We're like, yeah, that's a cow and that's the, that's a star and that's the sun. But then we give the wrong import to those facts. We have the wrong glasses. We have blurred vision because of sin. Um, the truthfulness of the Bible should commend itself as being far more persuasive than other religious books or than other intellectual constructions of the mind. It comports best with reality. However, or we would say, as Grudem says, thus in a free wor uh, world free from sin, the Bible would commend itself convincingly to all people as God's word. But because sin distorts people's perception of reality, they do not recognize scripture for what it really is. Therefore, it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the bottom line. Overcoming the effects of sin to enable us to persuade, to be persuaded that the Bible is indeed the word of God and that the claims it makes for itself are true. Does that make sense? <clears throat> the Bible is the highest authority. If God really exists, he is the highest authority in the universe. God has created us. He does exist. He's created us in his image with the capacity to know and understand language. And that he has communicated to us through language. Uh, however, since the fall, people misinterpret reality. And so while the evidence should be clear to everyone, if it weren't for sin, because of sin, people misinterpret the evidence. And as Romans says, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When Romans says that people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it's not saying some people do that. That is a, a blanket statement of humanity, that humanity by nature suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And so you can give them evidence, right? I can tell them that there are fossils on the highest mountains and say, therefore, that proves a worldwide flood. What do they say? No, that actually proves evolution because those mountains millions of years ago used to be down in valleys and covered by water. And so fossils on mountains prove nothing but gradualism. They take the evidence I'm giving them that should demonstrate a worldwide flood based on the, their presuppositions. They reinterpret it and they come to a completely different conclusion. So presuppositions has everything to do with how we interpret evidence and facts. And because the Bible tells us that we have the wrong glasses on and our and our vision is blurred by sin. It is not mere facts that's going to convince anybody of the truth. The Holy Spirit has to enter in and do a work, right? First Corinthians two, I won't have you turn there. Many of you probably know it. The natural man, what does he understand the things of the spirit? He does not understand them, nor can he know them. The, in fact, let's go ahead and open there real quick. 
And we are going to get Samuel up here soon, I promise. That's right. It's spiritually discerned. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, just to remind ourselves. This is, again, back to last week. This is part of our biblical epistemology, our theory of knowledge. Uh, Let's see. Okay, verse 14. The natural man, that is the unbeliever, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Nor can he know them. The unbeliever cannot understand spiritual things. They're foolishness. Brian used to say to me all the time, you haven't said to me in a while, but we used to have this conversation every single week. He would say, Mike, I witness to people every day, and every day people reject God. Why won't they believe? He's given spiritual things to natural men and women who cannot know, cannot know spiritual things. So it requires the Spirit to enter in and to do an awakening work to impart knowledge to people. Does this make sense? Because of the fall, people cannot see the truth. In fact, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible also tells us they've been taken captive by the devil to do whose will? His will. And so we teach the truth of the Bible uh, in humility and gentleness, awaiting for the Lord to grant them repentance, right? And we don't say, oh, you must be so stupid. I'm so smart and you're stupid. Why won't you believe the gospel? That's not, the Bible tells us epistemologically, that's not what's happening. It's not they're stupid and I'm smart. It's the Holy Spirit has awakened this sinner, this, this person who was bound by the devil to do his will. I was darkened just like anybody else. I could not understand the things of the Spirit of God. I was a natural man. I suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. I thought I was free, but I was actually taken captive by the devil to do his will. And then uh, uh, my living babysitter began to share the gospel with me. And over many years, the Holy Spirit began to open up my eyes. And then one day I embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, not because of me and my smarts, but because of the grace of Almighty God. And then I began to study the Bible and it was making sense to me. I was like, wow, these things that didn't make sense to me and I rejected and I thought were foolish now are making sense and I love them. I can remember as a 14 year old jumping up and down on my bed because I was so excited about a Bible verse. What 14 year old jumps on their bed because they're excited about the Bible? No normal 14 year old. That's somebody that the Holy Spirit has been doing some work in their heart. Now they, they love the Bible. Right? I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Nobody was telling me, you've got to read your Bible. I'm just in my room by myself, reading my Bible, having, just enjoying it. Right? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so how do we know that the Bible is from God and therefore worthy to be trusted as our guide? Well, first we start with the internal evidence that we've been talking about. The Bible is the Word of God because it says it is. And it allows us to make sense of the world. No other system of thought provides a consistent rational explanation for our world. So we start with the authority of the word of God that is not irrational for God to swear by himself. And so we go to the Bible and the Bible proves itself to be the Bible. And it makes the most sense of the world as we have the right glasses on. As we look out into the world, we see that the Bible's rational, right? 
That doesn't mean your natural friend is going to think it's rational. You can give them all the rational arguments. A lot of times they're going to say, You're, that's foolish. But we've got the right glasses on through the Holy Spirit. And we see it's rational. Okay? What does the Bible say about itself? The Old Testament says, Thus says the Lord, or something similar over 2,000 times. The New Testament scriptures claim to be the words of God. If the Bible never claimed to be the word of God, we could say, well, we don't really know. But the Bible claims everywhere, both in Old and New Testament, to be the word of God. Um, we can, can, what can we expect from a book that comes from God, the God who cannot lie? If the Bible claims to be the word of God and God cannot lie, what would you expect of such a book? You would expect a book full of truth, not lies, Right? If indeed the Bible is the word of God. Um, We also have what um, John Calvin in the Westminster Confession of Faith says are uh, uh, many sufficient uh, proofs externally. It doesn't use the word externally, but there are many sufficient proofs of the Bible. When the mess, uh, I'd really encourage you guys to take a look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. I should have put out one of the slides. The Westminster Confession of Faith is just an absolutely amazing document in all of Western culture. So even if somebody wasn't even a believer, I would tell them, read the Westminster Confession of Faith to understand Western culture. For Christians, I would say you're looking at a document that some of the best Christian minds in all of history spent a lot of time on. And even though we may not agree with every um, dot and tittle, it's an amazing document. One of the things that I, that I would really encourage you to take a look at this week is the section on Scripture where it talks about what we've just talked about, how that it's the testimony of the Holy Spirit that makes our understanding of the Bible sure and certain. That's the only way that you come to 100% certainty. Nevertheless, while external proofs cannot bring us to certainty, there are many sufficient proofs that would bring people to uh, acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God if they have the right glasses on. I'm paraphrasing. They're not using the word glasses and so on. Yeah, Mitch. We'll get into it. Sure. Job 12, 7, and 8. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, I think more, I'd have to go read the context there, but Mitch is talking about in Job, how Job is saying, ask the beasts and they will tell you what I teach you. Job can be a little bit tricky because you need to first of, all, first of all figure out, is it come from the enemies or is it come from Job? Is God speaking it? And so it's, we have to be careful about dropping right in the middle of Job and pulling something out of the enemy's speech and using it. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so, but that, that actually comports with what the first part of Psalm 19 says that we can look at all of creation and creation is designed to tell us something about God so that people are without excuse, as it says in Romans 1. There's enough information in nature that makes man and men and women culpable. The problem is, is Romans 1, the rest of that passage tells us what people always do with that information, and that is what? They suppress it in unrighteousness. Even though there's enough information to convince everybody that there really is a God, that he is powerful, Um, that he's almighty, and that people should acknowledge that human beings consistently, without fail, suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That's the problem with general revelation. General revelation is out there, but it never converts. Never converts. To get conversion, you have to go to the second half of Psalm 19 that says it's the law of the Lord 
that converts, right? It's the testimony of the Lord and so on and so forth. Um, that's, it's, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We can go off into nature and look at nature all we want. And, and the Lord will frequently use nature to pe- get people to start asking big questions like, man, certainly there must be a God. But nobody's going to look at the sun and come to the or the sun or the moon and come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on the cross for our sins as a substitutionary sacrifice, propitiating the wrath of God, was raised from the dead to demonstrate justification, now sits at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us, and he's coming back in all of his glory, and he will be the king forever. You don't get that from nature. That only comes from special revelation. <clears throat> and God in his goodness has given a special revelation. So let, let's talk about some external evidences that we were, had to rush by last week. Um, so there are sufficient proofs, as Calvin and the Westminster Fe- Confession of Faith acknowledges, but they cannot bring us to certainty. The Bible message contains life-changing power. It transforms the sinner. And so I'd encourage you to do, when you're talking to people and sharing the gospel, you can talk about how the Bible has changed your life and changed many people's lives in history. Uh, neither man nor Satan has been able to destroy God's word, but the word of our God stands forever. We'll talk more about that today. As much as people have tried to destroy the Bible, the Bible still survives. Um, archaeology, archaeological finds confirm scripture. Um, go check out all of the um, all of the departments around the world that study um, the archaeology behind the Book of Mormon, right? Go check out all those archaeological departments that support the Book of Mormon. You know what you're going to find? Zippo. There isn't any archaeological support of the Book of Mormon. Uh, But the Bible has all kinds of archaeological support. We talked about this a little bit last week. We have the Hittites. We have Nineveh. We have many different finds um, that have confirmed uh, the scriptures. Uh, the book of the Bible, the books of the Bible were written over a period of 1600 years, 40 different authors from various different walks of life, writing in different places, times, moods, different continents, three languages covering hundreds of controversial subjects. And yet they present absolute harmony from beginning to end. Now, let me just use this as an example of what <clears throat> evidence can and cannot do. This evidence convinces me because as I'm looking at the evidence through the glasses of uh, the Bible and with the Holy Spirit to help me understand evidence, this makes sense. This makes rational sense how the Bible has been assembled, and it's amazing how it's so how so much continuity. But you talk to an unbeliever, or, you know, some sort of uh, unbelieving New Testament scholar, and they're going to absolutely deny this. They're going to they're, they're going to try to show all the different contradictions, apparent contradictions in the Bible. And um, I had a guy when I was at UCR said. <clears throat> talked about the contradictions because the Old Testament tells us that we're supposed to shave our beards in such and such a way and wear certain types of clothing and certain types of dietary regulations. And so obviously no Christians do that today. So it's a total contradiction in Christianity and in the Bible. And so I, I just had a little Bible lesson with him about context and original audience. And he had never heard that before, never even considered it. Um, Old Testament passages give more than 50 prophecies of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every prophecy written more than 400 years before his birth came true. We look at that evidence and we say, that's absolutely right. The book of Isaiah is written 700 years B.C. You have all these things that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> what, do, what are other people going to do with that evidence? They late date the books many times. 
and, and they say the apostles just tried to stuff and fit things that were meant to apply to another person or another place. And they've, they've stuffed and fit it towards Christ. So what should be compelling truth just falls on deaf ears many times. Um, the Bible has been copied, translated more than any other book in the world and has come down to us amazingly well-preserved. We're going to talk about that today. This is amazing that the Bible is so incredibly well-preserved for us today. And that is that. We're, this is, we're going to talk about um, this in just a moment. Um, last year, we, ha- we were able to have a number of student speakers come and share what we would call like a short and apologetic speech um, on these types of topics. And I've asked uh, Samuel Pena to come this morning. And Samuel is a 16-year-old who is actually a senior in high school, is going to be graduating this year. And uh, just to give you guys an example of what you can be doing to share uh, the truth. Um, Young people can do this. Young people study the Word of God. They share the Word of God with people. There's lots of great evidence out there that we can, we can use to support the scriptures. And so let's, without any further ado, let's have Samuel Pena come on up and let's welcome him. Thank you, sire. Hi, everybody. How are y'all doing today? All right. Well, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the telephone game. It's one of my favorite games <laughs> one person who will whisper something to the person next to them and on it goes down the line or in the circle and in the end the last person who hears the story or the phrase that was uttered tells the, tells everybody out loud what the phrase they heard was and it's really fun because by the time you get to the end of the line or the end of the circle the story or phrase has completely changed it was nothing like what the first person actually said because somewhere along the line some sort of mistake has been made and it has been changed And oftentimes this happens with historical documents too. When they are first written thousands or hundreds of years ago, they are saying one thing, and then through all the translations, the transmissions that were made throughout history, they were changed. Something was different. But if we look for the Bible, we see a different story. We look at Scripture, and the changes that are made are very, very minor and are grammatical at the very very worst-case scenario. And there's nothing really changed from when scripture was first written. And it's remarkable considering a book that was written over a 1,600-year span. And it's very different and unique from all the other historical texts at the time. Now, we know that the scripture was written by human authors. But at the same time, there has to be something different or some sort of divine influence on the scripture in order for it to have this unique text. And you've asked me today to speak on the question, how can the Bible be written by man and also be written by God? And it's very interesting because we know that it's written by man, but it also is very different. And I think that the answer to this question is found in the idea of inspiration, where there was a bridge between man writing the Bible and also God's words being put into the Bible as well. So first, I'd like to take a look at very briefly the human aspect of the Bible. And then I'd like to take a look at the divine aspects of the Bible, and finally, how they both come together through biblical inspiration. So first, let's take a look at the human aspects of the Bible. And this is pretty much self-explanatory. I mean, we know that it was written by over 40 different human authors. And we can tell this through numerous different ideas, but one of the 
very clear ways of telling that it was written by different people was through the style of the writers. For example, if you look at the style of Peter or John, Peter was a fisherman and John was a very simple man and they both settled down and they wrote in very, uh, not unsophisticated I would say, but the type of style that they had was very different than the Polish style, for example, Paul, who was a scholar, religious scholar. And they also would use shorter sentences, more self-explanatory, whereas Paul would go on for a long time. His paragraphs would be just a few sentences and they would be very, very long. So you can see a very different style from each of the different authors. But not only that, because the Bible was written over a 1600 year period, the times in which these different men were speaking, they would talk about different events that were happening at the time. For example, you look at Paul, he talks about his own experiences, for example, when he was, when he was, I think for example, I should cut down on that. He was <laughs> talking about the different times when he was shipwrecked, and he was also talking about the Roman Empire being in control of the land at the time. Whereas if you go back <coughs> to the time of Job, for example, there is no Roman Empire. There is no one in charge. There was at that time a very different, a different world in which there was no specific ruling nation. So the different time periods also influence the way in which the writers are putting the, their words into the Bible. So we see that there is definitely a human aspect to the Bible. However, there also must be a divine aspect to the Bible because it's very unique from all the other historical texts. If you look to the way that the Bible was written, it's very open and honest about the people that it's representing. It was written by Israel, it was written by Jews. And unlike all the other historical texts, is very open and honest about the sins of the Jews. If you look to other historical documents, for example, Sumerian tablets, whenever they would write down their history, they would talk about the battles in which their nation faced. And they would always downplay their losses. In fact, sometimes they would completely omit their losses in battle. And they would always upgrade, always talk about how amazing their victories were in battle. They would also overestimate the amount of troops that they were fighting in order to make it seem as if their nation was the dominant one. If you look to the Bible, that's completely different. They are always talking about the sinfulness of the Jewish people. The theologian A.W. Pink said, that in the repeated mention that we have in the Old Testament of Israel's sins, we discover in light as clear as day the absolute honesty and candor of those who recorded Israel's history. The corrupt condition of their hearts is made fully manifest. In the whole realm of literature, there is no parallel. You look to when Israel was in the desert for 40 years. They talk about how they were complaining and they were sinning. There's no sugarcoating here. You look at all the losses, for example, at the Battle of Ai. They admit, we should have won at the Battle of Ai. We should have been able to beat them, but we were cocky and we lost. <laughs> you look to Solomon, you see the exact same example. You see Solomon turning to other gods. They were saying Solomon fell into sin. So unlike all the other historical texts, they don't try to downplay their failures. They are open and honest about it. So there's something unique about scripture, but it's also reliable. Professor William Albright, when he was talking about scripture, he stated that it is the most reliable historical text that he has ever seen. That's a very telling, that's a very telling quotation because Professor Albright himself is not a Christian. And yet here he is coming from a secular standpoint, and he's saying, hey, it is the most reliable text I have ever seen in my life. Mm. It's also infallible. There are no contradictions that are made in scripture as well. So there's something different about it. 
And I believe that what's different about it is that it comes from a higher source. It doesn't come from just man. It comes from God. And it says so in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. It says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There are two important words to look at here. The first word is the two-letter word is, which comes from the Greek word genomai, which means origination. And the second word is interpretation, which comes from the Greek apeliosis, which means determination. And in this particular context, it's talking about the determination of right and wrong. So knowing what is truth and what is false. So essentially what this verse is saying is that man never would have written scripture, but beyond that, man never would have been able to determine what is right and wrong. <laughs> Only God could have done that in mm. saying that scripture originated from God himself. So there definitely is a divine influence on here. But how do we merge the two? How do we talk about both man and God writing scripture? Because it seems like a contradiction to say that they both didn't. But I think the answer to this question comes from the idea of inspiration. Now the verse commonly used when theologians are talking about inspiration is in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. It says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now the word inspiration here is different than the Greek word apeliosis. It's not the determination of what is right and wrong. In this verse, the word inspiration comes from the Greek theosnustas, which means God breathed. So this verse is literally saying it came from the breath of God himself. I remember Dr. R.C. Sproul talking about this word, and he said that if, if we were actually going to interpret it, it should actually probably be interpreted as expiration. Not somebody dying, but rather expiration means someone breathing out. Because when we talk about when someone dies, we say they breathed his last. He breathed out. So the actual word expiration here fits very well. It's talking about God breathing these words out. He's literally <laughs> telling you these words. But at the same time, we know that it was written by man. So if you were to sum up essentially how these two different ideas of God and man writing the Bible come together, it's the idea that man wrote it in his own style in his own unique way. The words with which he chose to write scripture are his own. However, the ideas and the concepts and the facts that are in scripture come from God himself. Mm. And there's three things we can take from this. Knowing that an infallible God wrote scripture, what can we understand about it? Well, the first thing that we can understand is that the Bible is inerrant. If we're talking about a perfect God, one who makes no errors, then obviously the words with which he writes are going to be infallible. If you look in John 7, 17, it says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So not only is God truthful, but the words which he writes are also truthful. The second, the second thing we can derive from this is that the Bible is reliable whenever it's talking about history, science, or geographic locations. I remember a few years ago, I was very interested in the idea of Jericho. In Joshua 6, it tells the story of the children of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho seven times and then belling out at the end of it, and the walls of Jericho fell outward. Now, many people, many historians disagreed on two things. Number one, they stated that this is not possible for the walls to have fallen out. And number two, they disputed the very existence of Jericho itself. For hundreds of years, they said it never existed. But finally, we were able to find the city of Jericho. But beyond that, the walls of the city fell outward. Now, whenever you have an earthquake or some sort of natural disaster, the walls of a city would fall inward. 
So for the world to have fallen outward means that something different must have happened. Some sort of a divine influence must have happened. So once again, we see that the Bible is reliable when it comes to historical facts. And the third and the final thing that we can take from this idea that God is the one who wrote scripture is that the Bible is uniquely authoritative for the Christian. It governs our daily life. If you look in 2 Timothy 3.16, the verse right after it, verse 17 says, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So not only does the Bible come from God himself, but it's also perfect for the Christian. It's also the way that we discover how to live our daily life, how we determine what is right and wrong. We look through the Bible. So while it may seem like a contradiction to talk about how man and God both wrote scripture, I believe that the beautiful idea of inspiration, Theos Nisos, perfectly explains how this came to be. Man did write scripture. It was his own idea. It was his own words. It was his own way of writing the Bible. However, the ideas of scripture and the morals that are laid out in scripture come from God himself. So the telephone game has no effect in this place. It has no effect whatsoever. We're not going to see over time, we're not going to see a change in the scripture. We may see small grammatical changes in the text. But when you have God himself writing the Bible, how can you expect any significant changes to be made to the biblical text? Thank you. All right. Would you want to do some Q&A? Is that okay? Is that okay? Okay. Thank you so much, Samuel. Oh, I'm on the wrong mic. Oh, I got a mic on my head. Um, any questions that you guys have for... Mr. Pena, feel free. Yeah, Joe. Good, Ben. Maybe some other Thursday. You guys can connect, share your business cards. <laughs> be great. Ah, uh, hey, you're not supposed to say that. <clears throat> Scholars. I believe we have 
when it comes to the Bible, we have the most actual manuscripts, original manuscripts of any other text ever written. I think that the second is the Iliad with over 600 texts. I forget the exact, uh, the exact number of manuscripts we do have in the Bible. However, whenever you look at the manuscripts that we do have, they come down from a time that is very, very short from when the original authors were to write it. In fact, the one text, I believe, is just a mere 60-year period from when it was first written to the translation that we now have. But even beyond that, when you look to the translations that were made, they were very, very, very careful that they didn't change what was written. For example, the Masoretes, they would, whenever they were translating the Bible, they would have two people over the scriptures, and one person would be writing it, and the second person standing over him, making sure he didn't make any changes from the original text. So while we don't have the first draft, I guess you could say, of, of the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels or any of the Bible, we don't have that. We do have many of the uh, uh, manuscripts that were written immediately afterwards. Excellent. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> Iggy. So can you, the, the question is, 60-year period, there's still plenty of time for the content to be changed. That's a, yeah, that, I guess you could say, yeah, 60 years for sure. But let's say that that is the amount of time for the Bible to change. If we look at Scripture, however, it's remarkable that even in those 60 years with all those changes that were made, it still doesn't seem to contradict itself. So if there were changes that were made in Scripture over that 60-year period, why is it that we still look at all the historical facts that it talks about and we still find archaeological and scientific evidence to back it up? So yeah, maybe there were some changes that were made, but is it likely that those changes are made? Well, given the scientific and archaeological evidence for it, I really think that it points to the fact that it wasn't changed. And like I said before, they were very, very careful in the translations that they did make, so the chances of those changes happening are very, very likely. Okay, let's thank Samuel for coming out. <clears throat> Good job, man. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, and Iggy, I'm glad you asked that question. That's actually uh, part of what we're going to get into right now. Uh, we're probably going to need to split this lesson up. You guys can hold me accountable and kind of throw a rope around me in 10 minutes and tell me I'm done. Uh, but let's let's take a look at we're going to segue from that into the preservation of Scripture, the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. How do we know that the Bible has been preserved? It's one thing to say, as Samuel was saying, that's inspired, <clears throat> that that God gave his words to the prophets and breathed out. But just like Iggy was asking, maybe his word has not been preserved for us to today. And maybe the original words that were in the autographa, those original manuscripts, have been lost. How do we really know that God's word has been preserved for us today? Well, 
I'm going to try to be consistent in this class. We start with the Bible itself. We start with God's promises itself, and then we'll also take a look at some external evidences. But Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God has promised that his word will stand forever. Uh, And so we're going to look at a few passages, but part of what we're going to argue, I don't know we'll be able to get into it all this morning, is that God has chosen by his own decree to preserve the word of God. That's the first answer to Iggy's question, is that God has decreed that his word would survive. That's one aspect of the doctrine of preservation. The other aspect of the doctrine of preservation is very important as well, though, and that is that God has given a duty to the church to preserve it. There's decree and there's duty. And so, and like with, with a lot of doctrines, there's, there's the divine side and then there's the human responsibility. And as we look, we're going to look here in a little while at, the, at just church history, <clears throat> is that sometimes the church has done a good job in preserving the word of God. And sometimes they have not done such a good job. And yet God's decree marches on. Um, And so we're going to try to develop that doctrine. Let's go ahead and open up to do that. Let's open up to Jeremiah 36 as we talk about the doctrine of the preservation of God's word. So Isaiah, Jeremiah... Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, we're in Jeremiah 36. And we're going to look at a place in the Bible where somebody destroys the autographer. The original document gets burned by this bad guy named Jehoiakim. Can everybody say Jehoiakim? God bless you. So in verse 1, we see, this is Jeremiah 36, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, okay, so here's God speaking to a prophet. The wind's about ready to blow through the sail. Take a scroll of a book and write it. um, All the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations Uh, from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah, even to this day, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities, which I purpose to bring upon them that everyone may turn from his evil way uh, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So it's, couple things I just want to point out that are interesting here. One is God is commissioning Jeremiah to write down not just stuff that he's about ready to give him, but prophecies that had been given to him in the past. Right. So uh, Jeremiah had prophesied previously, but now he's being led of the Lord to put into Scripture these prophecies, assumedly by divine direction and perfection. Uh, Verse four. Uh, Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of uh, Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book um, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. So Jeremiah is is uh, retelling the prophecies and Baruch is writing them down. 
skip down to verse 17. And they asked Baruch. So, so there's uh, some bad stuff that happens. And uh, Jehoiakim uh, is not too excited with Jeremiah. Uh, there's a, a group that's all gathered together. Verse 17, they asked Baruch saying, tell us now. How did you write all these words at his instruction? So Baruch answered them. He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. <clears throat> then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. These are actually good guys that are helping them hide because they know that Jehoiakim is not going to be very excited. Let's ask a couple questions of this text. What type of literature do you think this passage is? Yeah, it seems like we're dealing with history, right? There's a historical telling of how these words of Jeremiah were written down in a book through Baruch. And there's some people, some court, um, some people in the court of Jehoiakim that are wanting to protect them. <clears throat> and uh, who was instructed to write God's words initially? Jeremiah. So, uh, but Jeremiah seems to understand it was okay to commission who actually wrote the scroll Baruch uh, how did this process work God had given Jeremiah the words to say he says them out loud Baruch writes them down uh, what message did Jeremiah proclaim is this a happy message or a message of doom doom but is there possibility for repentance yes so it seems like as the message of Judgment is being written. There is a possibility of repentance. What advices do the princes give to Baruch? Get out of here. You got to hide. This is bad, bad news coming up. Okay. Um, why did the princes advise Baruch and Jeremiah to go into hiding? You'd have to read the context. But the idea is they know Jehoiakim is, wants to take care of business. He wants to destroy the book. He wants to kill Jeremiah and so on. How does the description of the recording of God's words compare to Second Peter chapter 1? Is this just Jeremiah saying, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to just write some words to make everybody feel guilty. I'm just going to make up some doctrines to scare everybody to keep them in line. No, he's given a word from the Lord and it's in scripturated. Let's uh, finish by looking at verse 20 to 26 and we'll have to call it a day <clears throat> jeremiah 36 and we'll start in verse 20 and they went to the king that's the princes into the court but they stored the scroll um in the chamber oh no maybe i'm sorry this is probably baruch and jeremiah they stored the uh, scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll and he took it from Elishama the scribe's chamber and Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king and the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. Is this seem to be historical? Sure seems like it. A lot of detail. Verse 23. And it happened when Jehudi, Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife, cast it into the fire, and was 
that was on the earth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the earth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deleah, and Jemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded um, Jeher, uh, Jeher, I'm sorry, Jeremel, uh, the king's son, Zareah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. And so here you have what we would call an autographer. This is an original writing that is given to the king and the king burns it. So God's word has been lost, right? The scripture has been lost. And this is an original document. Um, what's Jeremiah going to do? What's God going to do? Is God threatened by Jehoiakim? Is God wringing his fingers up in heaven? What am I going to do now? I just gave out my word. It was thrown into the fire. There's now nothing I can do. To find out the answer, I want to encourage you guys to come back next week. <clears throat> All right. In fact, I want you guys to I want you guys to finish reading this lesson. We're going to come back and we're going to hit this at the very beginning and really try to develop this doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. Human beings have a duty. Jehoiakim had a duty to preserve the word of God, and he did not. He threw it in the fire. But God, in his uh, providence, decrees to preserve his word. Um, the flowers may fade, uh, but his word will stand forever. And we're going to see next week that over the course of church history, many people have tried to pervert the word of God. Many people have tried to destroy the word of God, but his word has come down to us, not through the telephone game. His word has come down to us preserved and we can trust it and we can bank on it. Any uh, questions, comments, criticisms or concerns before we close in prayer? Back here? No. Nothing? Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. Tell me your first name again. Marcus. Okay. Okay, so the question is, who decided which books get to be in the Bible as part of the canon? It's a really good question. Yeah, let me give you a short answer. Well, the first thing I'll do is if you send me an email, I'll invite you to the Dr. Matters class that's happening on Wednesdays. And we have a whole lecture on that with all the notes. We spent an hour and a half on that one question. And you could listen to that if you want and go through all the notes. The short answer is that God did and the church recognized it. Um, you know, our government makes money and then we recognize originals, right? People don't make the money. They recognize the money. God is the one that created the canon. The church merely recognizes the canon. 
and uh, there were there's both internal and external tests that were used in the process of canonization. It was not an event like the Book of Mormon dropping out of the sky in golden plates. It was a process, not an event. Um, and so and so we argue for God guiding that process, and He knew which books He was inspiring. Uh, Jesus had pre-authenticated his apostles to go out and write his word. He said, I'll bring all things back to your remembrance. I will guide you into all truth. Uh, They began to write the word of God with their associates. These books began to be uh, passed around to the various churches. The church never formalizes doctrine until it gets attacked, you'll notice, in church history. And so people are just reading the books of the Bible, and they're all happy until people, until pseudepigraphical works start rising up. People start writing books saying, this is from Paul, but it's not, right? Then a guy in the second century rises up named Marcion and says, I don't like any of the Jewish books. I'm going to get rid of anything Jewish. Then a guy named uh, Montanus rises up and says, we don't need the written word of God. We need a fresh revelation from the Lord. We call it M&M, Marcion and uh, Montanus. That's the M&M of canonization. Because of the tax on the word of God, the church has to begin to formalize. And so they begin to go into a formal process over many years to recognize the books that God had already inspired. That's the short answer um, of canonization. The ultimate, the ultimate support of canonization is we believe in God's divine providence and, and, and leading the church to recognize the books that he had inspired. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Maybe next week I'll bring in and read you a little bit of the Gospel of Thomas um, that people say, hey, this should be one of the books of the Bible. Basically, in the Gospel of Thomas, it says, when he makes all females males, then they will go to heaven. So uh, in order to go to to heaven, as all females must become males. Sounds just like Jesus, right? Just like Jesus is teaching. And yet you got people saying, why don't we have the Gospel of Thomas in the Bible? Because it's nonsense, Gnostic nonsense that the church very easily recognized and rejected. That's why we don't have the Gospel of Thomas <laughs> in the Bible. But great question. I love the whole concept of canonization. I think that was it. It seemed like I saw one other hand, but I can't remember. Yeah, Mitch. Yeah, I'm not aware of that. Okay. Okay, with the King James translators. Yeah, there there are some issues there about the uh, King James. Maybe I can tell a real quick 1611 King James story. Would you guys allow that? Or you want to just close in prayer? Oh, yeah, we'll tell it. Okay. So, you know, we have friends, right, who would be described as King James only. Right, you have friends that are that way. It's like God inspired the King James. It's nothing to do with the originals and so on and so forth. <clears throat> what they don't realize, first of all, is that the 1611 King James went through hundreds of edits. Really, what, when we talk about the, the 1611 King James, we're talking about the 1789 edition of the King James Version. It was the finalized version that comes down to us today. And that's any translation, right? But we're, not, we're not claiming that English translations are inspired and inerrant. They go through editions, right? When my professor, Dr. Barrett, came into our class, 
He had his fresh New Testament in Bangladesh. He translated the New Testament into Bangladesh and he walks into class with it hot off the press. You know what he said to us? He said, I'm so nervous to find the first mistake. Was he saying that God's word is mistaken? No, he's saying he is a human being can make mistakes and has to go through many additions to get to a good place where it's a good translation for the Bangladesh people. All English translations have gone through a similar process, including the King James. One of my other professors, Dr. Stitzinger, in order to demonstrate some of the, the messiness of the translation process, he used to teach at a King James-only university or college, and he would leave his facsimile of the 1611 open to the book of Maccabees. And his students would walk in and be like, what's this? He goes, that's the 1611. Why is Maccabees in the 1611? Because they decided to put King James ordered to put the Apocrypha right in the middle of it. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. That's your uh, 1611 King James only story. So he just loved getting a rise out of students, seeing Maccabees, Bell and the Dragon, Tobit, right smack in the middle of their 1611. Does that upset you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Feel free to talk to me afterwards if you guys want to talk about that. That's a whole nother issue, 1611 King James. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us in preserving your word. Thank you for just allowing Samuel to come out and share with us uh, and just what a blessing he has been. And we pray you bless him. And uh, Lord, uh, help us to have faith in your word and understanding it as our first and final authority. And yet there are many sufficient firm proofs uh, that demonstrate as we have the right glasses on and look out at the world, we see that it comports with reality and is reasonable. We pray, Lord, however, that as we talk to friends and family, that we would just recognize your spirit has to do an awakening work. We'd be patient and humble, realizing that you have been gracious in our lives. It's not because we're smarter or better that we've come to know the gospel. It's because you have been so gracious to us sinners. And so help us to be patient, kind with our friends and family, waiting for you to awaken them, to rescue them from the clutches of the devil. And uh, we pray, Father, that we would go out this week and share the gospel with our friends and family like it is their lucky day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.